spiritually speaking, there are two ways to die. Only two ways. Everyone that dies will die one of these two ways. Number one, you can die in the Lord. Die as a believer in Jesus Christ, united with Him in a personal living relationship. Or number two, you can die apart from the Lord. Without Jesus and without hope for your eternity. There are only two ways to die. And this morning we're going to be reminded of the blessings that are ours. If we are followers of Christ. We're going to be reminded of the blessings of dying in the Lord. The difference it makes when you die and you know Jesus. And we're going to look in Revelation chapter 14. So turn there with me. Revelation, last book in the Bible, chapter 14. This summer, our sermon series is based upon seven blessings that are scattered throughout the book of Revelation. We began last week by looking at the first blessing in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed are those who read this book aloud, who hear it, and who keep its words. And we're going to look at the second blessing this morning in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, living word. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, the Bible says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Let's pray. Father, we pause to give you glory. We pause to recognize once again our need for you in this moment. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Holy Spirit of God, would you move in our midst? As I read this morning in my quiet time, would you, would you incline our hearts toward you? Give us a a desire, a passion for knowing you more and for obeying you and living for your glory. Bend our hearts, Lord, toward you that we might leave this place changed. So Lord, help us in these moments as we dig into your word and we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. Lord, establish my steps in your word and we ask and pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, the book of Revelation is a book that was written by the Apostle John in around, or around 95 AD when he was in exile on a barren prison island called Patmos. And the Lord appeared to him on that island and gave him four visions that he wrote down and then sent to churches scattered throughout first century Asia Minor. And 
that record, that unveiling of visions that John wrote down was uh, without doubt a great blessing to the churches in Asia Minor. And these words are great blessings to his church today. There's much for us to learn. Remember I said last week that Revelation is not just a knowing book so you can have your curiosity satisfied about the end times. Revelation is an obedience book. There are some things God wants to do in our lives through this study. Now, we're going to jump right into the middle of a passage this morning because we're studying the seven blessings scattered throughout the book. And as we jump into this passage, you need to understand we are jumping into the deep end. There there are some really interesting things happening here in this chapter. Now, remember, the first blessing is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. The second blessing is found in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. So there's been a lot that has transpired between chapter 1 and chapter 14. And I thought, so that we can understand this verse in its context, that it would be helpful for us to kind of get caught up to speed with what happened uh, throughout this book. And I think the best way to do that is just to look very quickly at a broad, I emphasize the word broad, broad outline of the entire book. And this is here in your notes, an outline of the book of Revelation. And I believe the outline is found in Revelation chapter 1. So turn with me, Revelation chapter 1. I want to show you the way I think the Lord intended this book to be understood. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, this is John's recorded vision of the Son of Man. He gets to see this exalted vision of King Jesus. He's trying to describe what he's seeing. And look what it says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19. The Lord says to him, Write therefore the things that you have seen, that's one, those that are, that's two, and those that are to take place after this. I believe that's a great outline of the book of Revelation. The things that you have seen, which he's describing there in verse 1. The things that are, which is found in chapters 2 and 3, where he addresses the churches in the first century that are going through various circumstances and situations. Then, the things, he says there in verse 19, that are to take place after this. Things that are in the future. I believe that most of chapters 4 through 22 are future tense, things that are to be understood as coming in the future from the Apostle John's day. And so if you look there, under the third heading of this outline, those that take place after this, that encompasses the, the, the majority of the book of Revelation. Now just kind of very quickly, to kind of catch up to speed with what happened between chapter 1 and chapter 14. Chapters 2 and 3, we see that, that the Lord addresses seven churches in Asia Minor. I preached on those seven churches and those messages last summer, so you can get those online if you want to hear those messages. Then in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, there's this vision of the throne room of heaven. And in the midst of unceasing worship, we see that Jesus, the Lamb of God, receives a scroll. That's what chapters 4 and 5 are about. Chapter 6 through 8 are the descriptions of what takes place as Jesus opens the scroll's seven seals. Now, in the midst of chapter 6 and 8, there's an interlude in chapter 7 that highlights the sealing of the 144,000 and the multitude from every nation around the throne. Now, some people say, well, who are the 144,000? There is a lot of of curiosity about these 144,000 folks that are mentioned in the time of the 
opening of the seals, which I believe is the time of the great tribulation. There, there are two major views. Let me give them to you very quickly, and I'm not going to solve these issues for you this morning, but let me just give you two major views. One is that these 144,000 are uh, Jewish evangelists. There's a great ingathering of ethnic Jews during the tribulation period that are saved, that believe Jesus is the Messiah, and begin to bear witness for him in the midst of great persecution during the tribulation period. Some people believe that the 144,000 uh, is a a symbolic way of referring to all of the church, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, again, I don't have time to get into all the issues, but just very quickly, there's some specificity with these 144,000. mentions the, the tribal names from the Hebrew nation. I believe it's here talking about Jews. I believe there's a great ingathering that lines up with Romans chapter 11. That's an entirely different sermon series, but it mentions the 144,000 Jews. By the end of chapter 7, it mentions that there are people from every tribe, every tongue gathered around the throne. So we see that there are Jews that are followers of Christ in the Great Tribulation, and there are people from every tongue, every background, every ethnicity who are followers of Christ. How many of you are glad that the gospel is for everyone? Not just for Jews, not just for Gentiles. Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's really, really good news. So there's this interlude that describes that there are these followers of Christ in the midst of all that's going on in the opening of the seven seals. Now, in chapters 8 through 11, it gets really, really interesting and fascinating and hard to understand. There is the, this picture of the angels blowing seven trumpets of God's wrath. And as they blow the trumpets, we see these different types of wrath that fall upon the earth during this time. Then in chapter 12 through 14, there's another interlude. Our passage we read this morning is in the midst of the second interlude, which again describes uh, the, the greater conflict going on between Christ and Satan and Christ's people and Satan and the world. Then in chapters 15 to 16, we'll get to this next week, there are seven bowls of God's final wrath during the time of the Great Tribulation and what that entails. We'll talk about that next week. Then in chapters 17 through 19, there is the description of the the final battle uh, that's coming at the end of all things. And then chapter 20 describes the millennial reign of Christ on the earth and the great white throne of judgment. We'll get to that soon. And then chapters 21 through 22 is, take a deep breath, The new heavens and the new earth. That's going to be good when we get to that. So that's kind of a broad outline of of the book of Revelation. So most of the book of Revelation, I believe, describes what happens during the Great Tribulation. So that's where we find ourselves this morning. There's description of this Great Tribulation. The the seals are open. The trumpets are blown. The the, the bowls are poured out. These are things that take place during this this time of great tribulation, which I believe is future tense. I believe it is it is coming. It hasn't happened yet. There's some things here that just hadn't happened yet as you study it. But I believe they're coming, and so we want to understand these events, and we want to understand the relationship of God's people to all this that's happening in the middle of the book of Revelation. So, again. Our passage, chapter 14, is an interlude that describes the role of God's people in the midst of all of the unfolding events in the tribulation. Now, you say, Wade, my head is spinning. Well, hey, welcome to the club. That's, that's been my week all week, studying all this stuff and trying to wrap my mind and heart around it. But I think it's going to be helpful for us to just think about three foundational statements. And these are in your notes. 
And this will set the stage for, I believe, understanding this blessing. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. So let me give you these three foundational statements. Now, again, we're going to talk about some really difficult stuff. And I'm going to open some cans of worms that I won't have time to close. All right? And I'm going to leave you curious on a lot of different issues. And so if you have further questions about end times, book revelation, things that you really want to know that I didn't get to or didn't fully explain, you can email me at frank at longviewpoint.org. So, here are the three foundational statements. You ready? Number one, Christians are going to experience suffering in this world. Christians are going to experience suffering in this world. Now look back with me in Revelation chapter 14. We see a verse right before uh, verse 13 that helps us understand the reason for the blessing. The reason the blessing is mentioned. Look what it says in Revelation 14 verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. Then the blessing is mentioned in verse 13. In other words, this blessing is meant to encourage saints to endure. Now, why would saints need to endure if they're not going through anything difficult, right? The Bible, you'd be surprised just reading the New Testament at how much the Bible calls for the endurance of God's people. And the reason the Bible calls for the endurance of God's people is because there is so much for us to endure. There's so much hardship in being a follower of Christ. And so Christians are going to experience suffering in this world. Now, put that on the shelf for a moment. Let me just talk to you about different views concerning Christians and the tribulation. This is going to be interesting to help us understand the type of suffering that you and I are going to endure. Now, first of all, some believe that Christians will be raptured before the seven-year period of tribulation begins. That's called the pre-tribulation view of the rapture, that before the tribulation starts, Christ is going to come back. There's going to be a secret rapture where God's people, those that know Christ, are caught up in the air with him. That is a, a very popular view, a, a, a predominant view probably in, in Southern Baptist life. And, and this has been a view that most of you have probably heard. You've, you've seen movies or read books like Left Behind and things of that nature. And that speaks of a pre-trib rapture. And so that view says, well, the Christians that are on the earth that are caught up in the air with Jesus, won't have to go through the tribulation. All right, And so that's saying, man, that, that's good news. You don't have to go through the tribulation if you are raptured before the seven years. Um, this view also holds that there will be people saved after the rapture. There will be, so even though the Christians who were alive that were raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, uh, there will be Christians or people saved and become Christians during the tribulation, so they will go through the events of the tribulation. This is clearly what is meant by chapter 7 of Revelation. Turn to Revelation 7 with me very quickly. Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? Who are these folks clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So if you hold to a pre-tribulation rapture view, the Christians on the face of the earth, when Jesus comes back to get them, will not have to go through the tribulation. But clearly, there will be folks that are saved, that are followers of Jesus, that do go through the events of the great tribulation and suffer in the midst of that time. Now, some believe that Christians will be raptured in the middle of the seven years. In other words, they'll be taken uh, off the face of the earth, raptured, before things get really bad. If you study the events of the tribulation, it seems that the first three and a half years, there are going to be some things unfolding, but it's not too bad yet. But at the three and a half year mark, things are going to turn, and it's going to get really, really difficult uh, as God allows a measure of evil on the face of the earth, the rise of the Antichrist and all of that. Uh, and then the wrath of God will be poured out upon the world. And so some people say, well, listen, the Christians will be, will be brought out of uh, the tribulation in the middle of it. That's a, another view. Some believe that Christians will be raptured when Christ returns at the end of the great tribulation. In other words, Christians uh, will experience all of the tribulation and will, and will go through the, the hardship and go through the suffering at the end of the tribulation, Christ will come back and take them to earth and, and usher in the rest of the events of the end times. Now, let, let me just kind of give fair time to all the views. Some that hold this view of a post-trib rapture believe that God will protect his people from his wrath in much the same way he protected the Hebrews during the plagues of Egypt. If you remember, as God was pouring out the plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt during the time of Moses, uh, certain plagues, it says that Goshen, where the Hebrews were gathered, was protected from the the plagues that God sent. And so some people think it's going to be like that. For Christians on the earth, during the tribulation, God's going to pour out his judgments, pour out his wrath, but Christians will be protected and preserved through that. And that's one of the, the theories of Christians going through the Great Tribulation. But here's the point. Whether you believe that Christians will go through none of the tribulation, part of it, or all of it, you still must be prepared to face suffering and persecution. Even if you hold to a pre-trib rapture, it does not mean that you are exempt from hardship and suffering. Because Jesus told us that even if we don't go through the tribulation, I mean, we may die before the tribulation comes. But even if we don't go through the tribulation, Jesus told us we will experience as his followers birth pains that precede the tribulation. Uh, hold your place. Turn to Matthew 24 with me. Matthew chapter 24. Look what it says in verse 3. Matthew 24, verse 3. This passage is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It says, As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Just like us. They're interested in the end time scenario. And, excuse me. Jesus answered them said, See that no one leads you astray. 
For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away, betray one another, hate one another. Many false prophets will arise, lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And so Jesus says... Even if you don't go through the great tribulation, you're going to go through the birth pains leading up to the great tribulation. And it doesn't sound real pleasant, does it? Listen to me. You and I are living in the time of the birth pains. And every day we're getting a step closer to the end of all things. But right now it's, it's birth pain time. And we're experiencing wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and nation rising against nation and Christians being handed over and persecuted and, and those that name Christ, uh, name the name of Christ, falling away, not truly saved, turning their back on Jesus. And we're seeing all these things happen in our day. So whatever your views of the tribulation, listen, you're going to go through suffering. You live in a sin-cursed world, a fallen world. Times are hard. And, and whether you live in the birth pains or you're saved after the rapture or saved during the tribulation or whatever your view is, it's going to be hard. And so Christians are called to endure. Now, look at the second second foundational statement. Christians are going to experience suffering, including us in this room. Number two, there are two great temptations for Christians in the midst of suffering and persecution. So when we go through hardship, we're all going to be tempted in two major areas— compromise and complacency. Turn back to Revelation 14 with me. Compromise and complacency. Now, here in chapter 14, we see a description of people that did not compromise during hardship, during the tribulation. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him, here they are again, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of, sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these, now watch this description. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women... For they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed for mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So there's this picture of these 144,000 who go through great suffering, great persecution, but they stay by the stuff. They endure. They don't throw in the towel. They're faithfully following Jesus wherever He leads, bearing witness for Him, even if it leads to their hardship. So they're, they're a picture of, of Christians going through great trial, but they don't compromise. And they're not complacent. They're living boldly for the Lord. They're following the land wherever he goes. And can I encourage you to 
desire to imitate these 144,000. In the suffering and persecution that we as believers in Christ endure in the here and now, we ought to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And we ought to bear witness to His greatness and His glory and His salvation and His hope, the hope that's only found in Christ, right? So these 144,000 did not throw in the towel. We should follow their example and keep on keeping on for Jesus. Amen? That's the point. There are two great temptations for Christians that go through hardship. It'll be true in the tribulation, and it's true in the here and now. Compromise and complacency. Now you need to understand, the temptations to compromise and the temptation to be complacent will be intensified during uh, the great tribulation for believers. Those that are, uh, that are believers in Christ during the tribulation will be, will be greatly tempted to give in to the ways of the world and will be greatly tempted to, to be silent instead of being a witness for Christ. But here's the third foundational statement I want to give you. This kind of sets the stage for the rest of the sermon. God promises a blessing for Christians that endure until their death. God promises a blessing for Christians that endure until their death. If we do not throw in the towel, if we do faithfully follow Christ, even through hardship, if we die in the Lord, there is great blessing in that. And God wants us to understand. That's why he gives us the blessing. Verse 12, this is a call for endurance. He wants us to understand that it's worth it to keep on keeping on and to bear witness for Christ and not compromise with the world. And so we want to study this blessing and we want to know what it's like to go through hardship and stay true to the stuff and experience the blessing of dying in the Lord and going to be with him in heaven. So let me give you, for the rest of this sermon, the blessings of dying in the Lord. The blessings of dying in the Lord. And they are twofold. Number one, the first blessing is rest. Rest. Look what it says in Revelation 14. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they may rest from their labors. Rest from their labors. That word labor means to to work to the point of exhaustion. So they're resting from their exhaustion, resting from their hardship, resting from their trials. The first blessing of dying in the Lord is the blessing of rest. And you say, wait, what's this rest going to look like? What does it mean to die and go to heaven and be with Jesus? Well, look what it says in Revelation chapter 7, back to chapter 7. Again, the throne room gives us some information by showing you this multitude around the throne, the kind of rest they received. If you're still with me, say amen. All right. Revelation chapter 7. Look what it says in verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. These that are saved out of the great tribulation, these that are wearing white robes, white in the blood of the Lamb, they are before the throne of God, serve Him day and night in His temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. What does rest mean? Rest is a metaphor for salvation. Rest is a metaphor for salvation. And it speaks of three things here in this chapter 7 passage. It speaks of completion. You've served 
to the point of exhaustion. You've stayed by the stuff. You've endured. You followed Jesus wherever he led you, even through difficulty and suffering and persecution. And when Jesus comes to get you, when it's time for you to go to heaven, when you die in the Lord, you rest. You complete your your job assignment here on this earth. It speaks of completion. It also speaks of peace. It speaks of peace. It mentions here that they are before the throne of God and, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. You are protected in heaven in eternity forever under the, the sheltering wings of Jesus. The peace of Christ. Protection is mentioned here in verse 15. The peace of Christ's provision, verses 16 and 17, he leads them to springs of living water. And the peace of God's comfort, verse 17, God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. So when you die in the Lord, you experience rest, completion, hardship is over. And you get to experience great peace in the presence of your Savior. You're protected. You're provided for. You are comforted. That's what it means to rest. I'm reading a, a, just a phenomenal book right now on a gentleman that served uh, in the army during World War II. And he was captured, uh, went through the Bataan Death March, and was taken to POW camps in Japan. And went through great hardship, spent over three years as a POW and uh, endured beating after beating after beating. He was given you know, one or two little rice balls every day to keep him alive and, and, and the, the balls of rice they were given were infested with worms. They would eat that every day and when he was uh, at the end of this POW time, he was just emaciated and suffering. And, and I just thought, can you imagine what it was like for him to get back home? He was from Alabama. Can you imagine what it was like for him to get back home and to experience a good southern meal? You know, cooking the good stuff. And and to come to that table when he'd been suffering and emaciated and beaten and to be in a safe place with people that loved him and to eat a a, a sumptuous meal and then to go lay down in, in his bed, comfortable bed, Clean mattress, clean blankets. Can you imagine the sense of rest? That's just kind of a a faint picture of what it's going to be like for believers. Yes, life is hard. There, There are fellow believers in Christ that are in this world today that are suffering greatly and are being persecuted for their faith. And, and we go through different types of hardship in this life. All of us do. Christians go through hardship. But there's coming a day of rest. A day when we will feast on the sumptuous wedding supper of the Lamb. We'll get to that in a few weeks. And, and we get to be in the presence of Jesus, our shelter, our protector, our provider, our peace, totally safe from the attacks of the world and totally safe from the attacks of the enemy. We will be at rest. There, there's another, another thing, another blessing for those that Die in the Lord. It's the blessing of reward. Look what it says in Revelation 14. Revelation 14, verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Watch this. Follow them. So when you die in the Lord and you go to heaven to be with Jesus, the things that you do in this life for the Lord 
follow you into heaven. Now, I had this thought last week, and I got happy thinking about it. I mean, it's almost shouting ground. Here's the thought I had, and this is in your notes. In Christ, when you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, our sins do not follow us. But our works for Him do. Listen to me. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have to keep looking back over your shoulder at your sins, at your past. It has been forgiven by Jesus. Amen? The blood of Christ has washed away your sins. You don't have to wonder if your sins are going to catch up with you and and God's going to punish you. Your sins were punished on the cross. Your sins no longer follow you. What follows you? David says in Psalm 23, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. And then when you die and you go to heaven, guess what's going to follow you? Not your sins, not your past, not your mistakes, not your failings. Your works for Jesus will follow you into heaven and be rewarded. Wow! That's what it means to die in the Lord. Like what Leon Morris writes, believers rest from their labor, but their deeds go into the life beyond the grave. This gives, I love this, dignity to all the work in which Christians engage. They are occupied in no insignificant task. I want you to know that if you are serving King Jesus, you are not involved in something insignificant. Your deeds will follow you into heaven and be rewarded. Listen, nothing we do for Jesus goes unnoticed. Nothing. Nothing. A few weeks ago, I was headed down to Jackson with a Tommy McDonald, and he was driving me down. I had uh, some meetings about church planting in, in Jackson, and we stopped at a McDonald's along the way. And we were uh, in the drive-thru, just getting a biscuit and some coffee. And we went up to the window. We had our, both ordered a biscuit and got some coffee. And, and the lady at the window said, uh, your meal's been paid for. And the person in front of us had paid for our meal. And we had just been talking about the car in front of us because they had Christian stickers. They were obviously followers of Christ. And they also liked motorcycles. But, and so they had, and they had all this going on. And so we were talking, we were talking about their car and, and, and the fact that they bore witness to Christ. And then they buy our meal. And they were gone. We couldn't say thank you. Man, it was a blessing. That was the best uh, McMuffin I've had in a long time. And they're nameless. I have no idea who it is. But God knows. God knows that they probably were trying to make some connection between their being a follower of Christ and showing kindness to others. And that, that deed's going to follow them into heaven. Listen, you can be anonymous. No one else has to know what you're doing. But God knows. And God rewards because your deeds follow you into heaven. Listen, every act of kindness... In Jesus' name, every encouraging word spoken, every time you speak of Christ and his unfailing love to others, everything you've given as a tithe or offering for his glory and his work, every role of service in the body of Christ, whether appreciated or unappreciated, every prayer breathed out on behalf of others, every moment of heartfelt worship for our great God, everything you do for Jesus is noticed by heaven. When you get to heaven... There will be rewards. Wow. That's what it means to die in the Lord. Your your good deeds follow you. So let me give you this. It will be hard to live for Jesus. 
I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to mince words with you this morning. If you choose to follow Jesus as a faithful disciple, it's going to be hard. Jesus said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul said that in 2 Timothy, wrote that in 2 Timothy, will be persecuted. It's going to be hard, but listen, everything you do for Jesus will be worth it. Don't throw in the towel. This is a call for endurance. Don't give up. Even if you're tempted to compromise or, or just sit on the sidelines in complacency, keep on following him. It will be worth it. James Hamilton writes, Trusting in Jesus and obeying God's commands may get you killed by Satan, but the temporary suffering before death and death itself will be overcome by God's resurrection power. So that's what it means to die in Christ. Rest and reward. But just very quickly to close this sermon. Let me show you the alternative to dying in Christ. Because I don't want to be a, a preacher that doesn't give you the whole story. The Bible gives us the whole story, the complete picture. So you make an informed decision. I want to just say a quick word about the future for those who reject Christ. Those that die separate from Christ. Remember there's only two types of, of ways to die. In Christ or outside of Christ. I want to share with you the future of those who reject Christ. First of all, back in Revelation 14... The world which promises so much will be destroyed. The world which promises so much will be destroyed. There in chapter 14, there's a mention of Babylon the Great. And Babylon is a symbol of the world powers that refuse to submit to God. So the system of this world, the ungodly in this world, that's Babylon. Going back metaphorically to the kingdom of Babylon, which was pagan and, and God used to judge his people. And God calls the world system today Babylon. In Babylon, the world is constantly luring you to compromise, right? Luring you to give in and live a worldly life. But look what happens to Babylon in verse 6 of chapter 14. I saw another angel flying directly overhead and with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth and to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second following, said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Those that give in to the ways of the world are giving in to an entity that will one day be destroyed. Why would you waste your life for something that's one day going to come to nothing. That's what he's saying here. Babylon will be destroyed. The world which promises so much will be destroyed. Stop, listen, stop living for this world. It is heading to utter devastating destruction. Live for Jesus. He's your only hope. The end of Revelation 14 tells us there will be two great harvests when the Lord gathers his people into one group. And gathers unbelievers into another group. In Revelation 14, read it in your own time. There's a, a gathering of grain, which I believe speaks of, of God gathering his people. And a gathering of grapes, which speaks of the gathering of unbelievers. That will, will drink of the, the wrath of God's judgment. There will be two great harvests. And when God begins this great harvest, believers and unbelievers, which harvest will you be in? See, those that turn their back to Jesus will, will suffer eternal torment. Look, look what it says in chapter 14, verse 9. And we're going to close with this. 
Another angel, a third, followed them and sang with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. Do you see the contrast there? They have no rest. They have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of its name. So here are your options. Die in the Lord and be at rest. Or die with your back turned to Jesus and suffer eternal torment. In that place called hell, the lake of fire. Those are your options. This is important stuff. This is, we're not talking about church membership or what denomination you're a part of. We're talking about your eternity. Do you know Christ? If you were to die today, would you die in the Lord? There are only two ways to die. Which way would you die? 